0: Section 16 of Religious Studies, Sketches, and Poems. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lois Beachy Yoder, Charlotte, North Carolina. Religious Studies, Sketches, and Poems by Harriet Beecher Stowe. The attractiveness of Jesus. There was one great characteristic in the life of Jesus, which his followers succeed in imitating less than any other. And that is a singular sweetness and attractiveness, which drew toward him, even the sinful and fallen. There are the most obvious indications in all the narrative that Christ's virtue was not of the repellent kind that drove sinners away from him, but that there was around him a peculiar charm and graciousness of manner, which affected the most uncongenial characters. We are all familiar with a style of goodness quite the reverse of this, a goodness that is terrible to evildoers, a goodness that is instinctively felt to have no sympathy with the sinner. Such was the virtue of Christ's great forerunner, John the Baptist. He commanded, but did not charm. The attraction that drew men toward him was that of a mingled fear and curiosity, but there was no tenderness in it. When the scribes and Pharisees flocked to his baptism, he met them with a thunderbolt. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He declined all social joys. He would not eat or drink at men's tables. He dwelt alone in the deserts, appearing as a voice a voice of warning and terror. His disciples were few. He took no pains to make them more. But even this stern and rugged nature felt the charm and sweetness of Jesus as something different from himself. It is very touching to read how the peculiar demeanor of Jesus impressed this hardy old warrior. And looking on Jesus as he walked, he said, "'Behold the Lamb of God "'that taketh away the sin of the world, the words seem as if they might have been said with tears in the eyes. Immediately, two of his few disciples left him and followed Jesus and he was content. He must increase and I must decrease, he said humbly. He that is from heaven is above all. We find that Jesus loved social life and the fellowship of men. Though he spent the first 40 days after his mission began in the solitude of the desert, Yet he returned from it the same warm-hearted and social being as before. The first appearance that he made was at a wedding feast, and his very first miracle was wrought to enhance its joy. A wedding feast in those lands meant more than with us. It was not merely an hour given to festivity, but lasted from three to seven days. There were large gatherings of relations and friends from afar. There were dances and songs and every form of rejoicing. And at this particular feast in Cana, it seems Jesus and his mother were present as honored and beloved guests. His gentleness and affability led his mother to feel that she might perhaps gain from him an aid to the inadequate provision made for the hospitality of the occasion. His reply to her has been deemed abrupt and severe that it was not so understood by his mother herself is evident from the fact that she did not accept it as a refusal, but expected a compliance and gave orders to prepare for it. It was necessary when among relatives in his family circle to express with great decision the idea that his miraculous powers were not to be considered as in any way under the control of his private and human affections, and that he must use them only as a higher power should direct. His presence at this wedding was significant of that divine love which ever watches over the family, and the wine that he gave symbolized that cheer and support which God's ever-present love and sympathy pours through all the life of the household. We gather incidentally from many seemingly casual statements that Jesus was often invited to feasts in the houses of both rich and poor, and cheerfully accepted these invitations even on the Sabbath day. He seems to have been also especially attractive to little children. He loved them and noticed them, and it would seem from some parts of the gospel narrative as if the little ones watched for his coming and ran to his arms instinctively. Their artless, loving smiles, their clear, candid eyes reminded him of that world of love where he had dwelt before he came to our earth. And he said, Of such is the kingdom of heaven, it was the sense that he loved little ones that led mothers to force their way with their children through reproving and unsympathetic disciples. There was that about Jesus which made every mother sure that he would love her child, and that the very touch of his hands would bring a blessing upon it. And when his disciples treated the effort as an intrusion, it is said, Jesus was much displeased. He did not merely accept or tolerate the movement, but entered into it with warmth and enthusiasm. He did not coldly lay the tips of his sacred fingers on them, but took them up in his arms and laid his hands on them and blessed them. He embraced them and held them to his heart as something that he would make peculiarly his own. It is no wonder, therefore, that Jesus was the children's favorite and that on his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem the hosannas of the children in the temple should have been so loud and so persistent as to excite the anger of the priests and scribes. They called on him to silence the little voices as if they felt sure that he could control them by a word, but that word Jesus refused to speak. The voices of these young birds of paradise were dear to him, and he said indignantly, if these were forbidden to speak, the very stones would cry out. But still more remarkable is the fact that Jesus was attractive to a class who, as a general thing, hate and flee from religious teachers. The publicans and sinners, the disreputable and godless classes, felt themselves strangely drawn to him. If we remember how intensely bitter was the Jewish sense of degradation in being under Roman taxation, and how hardly and cruelly the office of collecting that tribute was often exercised, we may well think that only Jews who cared little for the opinions of their countrymen and had little character to lose would undertake it. We know there are in all our cities desperate and perishing classes inhabiting regions where it would be hardly safe for a reputable person to walk. Yet in regions like these, the pure apparition of Jesus of Nazareth walked serene and all hearts were drawn to him. What was the charm about him, that he whose rule of morality was stricter than that of scribes or Pharisees, yet attracted and drew after him the most abandoned classes? They saw that he loved them. Yes, he really loved them. The infinite love of God looked through his eyes, breathed in his voice, and shed a persuasive charm through all his words. To the intellectual and uncultured men of the better classes, his word was, ye must be born again but to these poor wanderers he said ye may be born again all is not lost purity love a higher life are all for you and he said it with such energy such vital warmth of sympathy that they believed him they crowded round him and he welcomed them they invited him to their houses and he went he sat with them at table he held their little ones in his arms he gave himself to them. When the scribes and Pharisees murmured at this intimacy, he answered, The whole need not the physician, but those that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. His most beautiful parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son were all poured out of the fullness of his heart for them. And what a heart! What news indeed to these lost ones to be told that their father cared for them the more because they were lost that he went after them because they wondered. And that all around the pure throne of God were pitying eyes watching for their return and strong hands of welcome stretched out to aid them back. No wonder that the poor lost woman of the street had such a courage and hope awakened in her. That she pressed through the sneering throng and under the very eyes of scribe and pharisee found her refuge and rest at the gracious feet of such a master no wonder that matthew the publican rose up at once from the receipt of custom and left all to follow that jesus who had taught him that he too might be a son of god and we read of one zacchaeus a poor, worldly little man who had lived a hard, sharp, extortionate life, and perhaps was supposed to have nothing good in him, but even he felt a singular internal stir and longing for something higher, awakened by this preacher, and when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was passing, he ran and climbed a tree that he might look on him as he passed. But the gracious stranger paused under the tree, and a sweet, cheerful voice said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must dine at thy house. Trembling, scarcely able to believe his good fortune, we are told he came down and received Jesus joyfully. Immediately, as flowers burst out under spring sunshine, awoke the virtues in that heart. Lord, half my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything by false accusation, I restore fourfold. This shows that the influence of Jesus was no mere sentimental attraction, but a vital spiritual force corresponding to what was said of him as many as received him to them gave he power to become sons of God. It is a mistake to suppose that wicked people are happy in wickedness wrongdoing is often a sorrowful chain and burden and those who bear it are often despairingly conscious of their degradation. Jesus carried with him the power not only to heal the body, but to cure the soul, to give the vigor of a new spiritual life, the joy of a sense of recovered purity. He was not merely able to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, but also, Go in peace, and the peace was real and permanent. Another reason for the attractiveness of Jesus was the value he set on human affections. The great ones of the earth often carry an atmosphere about them that withers the heart with a sense of insignificance. Every soul longs to be something to the object of its regard, and the thought, my love is nothing to him, is a chilling one. But Christ asked for love, valued it, no matter how poor, how lowly, how sinful in time past, the love of a repentant soul he accepted as a priceless treasure, he set the loving sinner above the cold-hearted Pharisee. He asked not only for love but for intimacy. He asked for the whole heart. And there are many desolate ones in this cheerless earth to whom it is a new life to know that a godlike being cares for their love. The great external sufferings of Christ and the prophetic prediction that he should be a man of sorrows have been dwelt upon so much that we sometimes forget the many passages in the New Testament which show that the spiritual atmosphere of Christ was one of joy. He brought to those that received him a sense of rest and peace and joy. Saint John speaks of him as the light. He answered those who asked why his disciples did not fast like those of John by an image which showed that his very presence made life a season of festivity. Can the children of the bride chamber mourn while the bridegroom is with them? What a beautiful picture of a possible life is given in his teaching. God he speaks of as your father. All the prophets and teachers that came before spoke of him as the Lord. Christ called him simply the father, as if to intimate that fatherhood was the highest and most perfect expression of the great invisible. He said, therefore, to the toiling race of man, be not anxious. Your Father in heaven will take care of you. He forgets not even a little sparrow, and he certainly will not forget you. Go to him with all your wants. You would not forget your children's prayers, and your Father in heaven is better than you. Be loving, be kind, be generous and sweet-hearted. If men hate you, love and pray for them, and you will be your Father's children. See how the man Jesus, who was to his disciples the Master, Christ, had power to comfort them in distress, and how not only his own followers, but also those of his great forerunner John, were naturally drawn to confide their troubles to him. These disciples who took up the Baptists' disfigured body after spite and contempt and hate had done their worst on it, who paid their last tribute of reverence and respect amid the scoffs of a jeering world, were men, men of deep emotions and keen feelings, and probably at that moment every capability of feeling they had was fully aroused. It appears from the first chapter of John that he and others were originally the disciples of the Baptist during the days of his powerful ministry, and had been by him pointed to Jesus, we see in other places that the Apostle John had an intense power of indignation and was of that nature that longed to grasp the thunderbolts when he saw injustice. It was John that wanted to bring down fire from heaven on the village that refused to shelter Christ. And can we doubt that his whole soul was moved with the most fiery indignation at wrong and cruelty like this? For Christ himself had said of the martyr thus sacrificed, among those that are born of women there hath not risen a greater than john the baptist he had done a great work he had swayed the hearts of all his countrymen he had been the instrument of the most powerful revival of religion known in his times there had been a time when his name was in every mouth when all jerusalem and judea and beyond jordan thronged to his ministry even the scribes and pharisees joining the multitude and now what an end of so no man, seized and imprisoned at the behest of an adulterous woman whose sin he had rebuked, shut up in prison, his ministry ended, all his power for good taken away, and finally finishing his life under circumstances which mark more than any other could the contempt and indifference which the great gay world of his day had for goodness and greatness. The head of a national benefactor, of a man who had lived for God and man wholly and devotedly from his birth, was used as a football, made the subject of a court jest between the courtesan and the prince. Oh, that it had pleased God to give us the particulars of that interview when the disciples, burning, struggling under pressure of that cruel indignity, came and told Jesus. Can we imagine with what burning words John told of the scorn, the contempt, the barbarity with which the greatest man of his time had been hurried to a bloody grave? Were there not doubts, wonderings? Why did God permit it? Why was not a miracle wrought, if need were, to save him? And what did Jesus say to them? Oh, that we knew... We would lay it up in our hearts to be used when in our lesser sphere we see things going on in the course of this world as if God were not heeding. Of one thing we may be sure, Jesus made them quiet. He calmed and rested them. And all that Jesus taught, he was. This life of sweet repose, of unruffled peace, of loving rest in an ever-present father, he carried with him as he went everywhere warming melting cheering inspiring joy in the sorrowful and hope in the despairing giving peace to the perplexed and last and best of all in his last hours when he sought to cheer his sorrowful disciples in view of his death and one of them said lord show us the father and it will suffice he answered he that hath seen me hath seen the father the invisible jehovah the vast, strange, mysterious will that moves all worlds and controls all destinies reveals himself to us in the man Jesus, the Christ. We are told of an Old Testament prophet that sought to approach God. First, there was a mighty tempest, but the Lord was not in the tempest. There was a devouring fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. There was an earthquake. But the lord was not in the earthquake then there came at last a still small voice and when the prophet heard that he wrapped his face in his mantle and bowed himself to the earth the tempest the earthquake the fire are the unknown god of nature the still small voice is that of jesus it is to this teacher so lovable this guide so patient and so gracious that our Heavenly Father has committed the care and guidance of us through this dark, uncertain life of ours. He came to love us, to teach us, to save us, and not merely to save us, but to save us in the kindest and gentlest way. He gives himself wholly to us for all that he can be to us, and in return asks us to give ourselves wholly to him, Shall we not do it? End of section 16.